Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for our final NISO Experience educational session today. I am NISO past president, Dr. Lee Erickson, and we are pleased to bring this session with not one, but two presentations to you today. Our first presenter is Dr. J.C. Doucette, who will present early secondary alveolar bone grafting and cleft craniofacial orthognathic surgery planning. Following that, our next presenter will be Dr. Kathy Russell. She'll be presenting orthodontic treatment in conjunction with early secondary alveolar bone grafting at age six. First, let me introduce Dr. Doucette. Dr. Doucette is an assistant professor at the Division of Oral and Maxillofacial Science at Dalhousie University in Halifax. He completed his dentistry degree at the University of Montreal in 2004, followed by a general practice residency at the Notre Dame Hospital and University of Montreal in 2005. He obtained both his medical degree and Master's of Science and completed his residency in oral and maxillofacial surgery at Dalhousie University in 2011. He then concluded his subspecialty training with a cleft and craniofacial fellowship at the University of Montpellier in France in 2012. Dr. Doucette joined the QE2 Health Science Center and IWK Health Center in Halifax in July of 2012 as an attending oral and maxillofacial surgeon. His principal clinical interests include the primary and secondary repair of cleft lip and palate, the surgical management of cleft-related speech problems, and the correction of other craniofacial deformities. Dr. Doucette is a member of the AmeriCleft Research Group and has numerous peer-reviewed publications. His research interests focus on the primary repair of the cleft lip nasal deformity, early alveolar bone grafting, and cleft distraction osteogenesis. Welcome, Dr. Doucette. Thank you, Dr. Erickson. Um, first, uh, I'd like to thank uh, uh, NISO, as well as Dr. Erickson and Dr. Stewart to allow me to present uh, this afternoon on uh, early uh, secondary alveolar bone grafting, as well as uh, my view of cleft uh, craniofacial orthognathic surgery planning. So first I'll just start uh, sharing uh, my slides. Excellent. So um, when we talk about early secondary alveolar bone grafting, um, as many of you know, this is, uh, I guess first I will uh, disclose I do not have any financial or non-financial relationships, so nothing that I'm presenting I'm affiliated with. Um, so when we talk about secondary alveolar bone grafting, we all know that it's been widely accepted to graft the cleft alveolus at around 9 to 11 years of age, and this is typically based on the eruption pattern of the cleft adjacent canine. Many centers across North America as well as across Europe uh, use this protocol to time their graft. One of the concerns that we have with this uh, later secondary alveolar bone grafting is that it does not take into consideration the other teeth in the area of the cleft. So it does not take into consideration the cleft adjacent central incisor as well as lateral incisor if it is present. And that can lead to compromise in the parental status of the maxillary central and lateral incisor in that area. And it can also lead to a poor balance of the clinical crown length uh, between the maxillary central incisors as you can see here in this picture. So when I do my grafting, I usually follow two key points, two key principles that I use uh, to try to give uh, my patients the best outcomes possible. This include an earlier graft, and this is typically done before the eruption of the first tooth in the area of the cleft, which is typically the central incisor. So my grafting will occur often between five to six years of age, again, based on that eruption pattern. The second key point that I use when I do my reconstruction is I want to also give my graft a good base. And to give a good base, I usually do a nasal floor reconstruction, which I will present my technique a little bit later on. So why graft early? Why do we graft before the eruption of the central incisor? Again, we do this to optimize the parental status of all cleft adjacent teeth. Yes, the canine is important, but the central and lateral is also important. And when I said my technique, it's really not my technique. This is a technique that was uh, actually developed by uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Precious, which uh, published in 2009 his method for early secondary alveolar bone grafting at around six years of age. 
he showed in that article, uh, this is a nice article if you want to review the technique step by step, but he also showed in that article that when we did earlier graph, we got better central incisors, which had a better uh, attached gingiva, better clinical crown length, uh, and better overall uh, pyramidal support. Uh, he compared uh, patients that were grafted around nine to 10 years of age compared to patients that were grafted around five to six years of age. As you can see on this picture, when the grafts were done later, the crown clinical crown length was often 25% bigger than the adjacent central incisor. When the graft was done around five to six years of age before the eruption of the central incisor, the, the clinical crown length was almost identical at 99.4%. We also showed that this early grafting does not compromise bone stock. Um, this uh, was uh, published by the America Group. And as you can see, the first author will be speaking uh, later on, Dr. Cassie Russell. They published on the bone graft outcome um, of uh, multiple patients that were treated in different centers. Um, to assess these bone graft outcome, they, they used what uh, we call the SWAG scale or the standardized way to assess graft. This is a scale that's been validated across multiple studies. Um, and uh, they basically showed in that study that uh, earlier secondary alveolar bone grafting compared favorably with other centers uh, that used later graft. So the bone volume is not compromised despite the earlier graft, and that was actually, uh, or bone volume were comparing favorably to many of the other centers. Another criticism of early secondary alveolar bone grafting is that uh, some authors would publish that the earlier graft might compromise maxillary growth, similar to primary alveolar bone grafting. As you uh, all know, that's been well documented in the literature that these earlier graft uh, can lead to poor uh, anterior growth of the maxilla. So to assess that, uh, we published in the uh, Club Palate Craniofacial Journal uh, a study that compared or uh, growth outcome between our centers with early secondary alveolar bone grafting and other AmeriCleft center, which grafted at a more conventional time around uh, eight to nine years of age. And basically what we showed in that study is that the anterior maxillary growth of our patients that were grafted earlier um, was uh, very similar compared to uh, many of the other centers which had a more delayed grafting. So overall, or early secondary alveolar bone grafting did not compromise anteroposterous maxillary growth. We also compared our growth outcome to the Eurocleft data, uh, which also looked um, at similar growth outcome. And again, we showed that this early secondary alveolar bone grafting uh, did again not compromise maxillary growth. And actually in that study, we showed that it was comparing favorably to uh, many of the centers, as you can see here with the graphs of the SNA. We again showed in that study that uh, primary alveolar bone grafting was detrimental to anterior maxillary growth. As you can see here, the center F had the lowest SNA. So overall, we can definitely say that early secondary alveolar bone grafting based on our study does not compromise anterior maxillary growth. The second big thing that I mentioned before in terms of my grafting protocol is I do wanna give the graft a good base, and this is done via a nasal floor reconstruction. The nasal floor reconstruction is done by using uh, a cortical sheet of bone, which is harvested from the anterior iliac crest, as you can see here in the arrow. On top of the anterior, at top of that, at that level of the anterior iliac crest, we also harvest some cancellous bone, which we will pack in the rest of the defect at the level of the cleft alveolus. This cortical sheet of bone is adapted and molded to reconstruct the missing nasal floor, as you can see here on these picture. This is obviously inserted after a watertight closure of the nasal floor. Um, and as you can see here, the site for the grafting is ready. We have our palate reconstructed, or attached gingiva reconstructed, or nasal floor mucosa reconstructed. We have, again, the sheet of bone inserted in place. And all we have to do is to pack the rest of the defect with some cancellous bone and then close this vestibular incision to give a, or graft the best chance to heal properly. So I'd like to go through a couple of videos if uh, that's okay to, that represents a little bit of what I do in the OR. 
Um, so I'm going to get the first one started. So you can see here we have the site ready. So the palette and attached gingiva has been reconstructed. Um, so everything is ready to go uh, from that aspect. Our nasal floor has also been uh, completely closed. So I'm accessing the area of the nasal floor. And often um, at the level of the cleft alveolus on the medial aspect, uh, if it's a unilateral cleft, there is a, a crest of the maxilla, which can be used to anchor uh, or uh, nasal floor reconstruction. So this is the cortical piece of bone here that's been harvested from the anteriorly crest. I'm going to adapt and shape it to, again, reconstruct this nasal floor. The shaping or the curvature, um, I uh, do it using a Tessier's uh, crimper, as you can see here, just to basically give the nasal floor its uh, somewhat normal curvature. And this uh, cortical sheet of bone will then be inserted. And this video here, again, you can see that I will adapt this cortical sheet of bone to recreate that nasal floor. So it basically wedged in place. So I don't use any fixation uh, to leave it in place. It just wedges in place and stays stable. Now it is stable against that crest. So I can then pack from a retrograde approach the cancellous bone. Uh, so you can see here, there's a cancellous bone chip that I'm placing into the alveolar defect. The big advantage of going through this retrograde approach is I can actually pack the cleft site really well all the way from the nasal floor reconstruction to uh, the super aspect of the attached gingiva. If I closed everything after I put the bone, then it's, uh, it's more problematic because you can't put as much bone. And when you try to close, you have the bone in the way. You can also see here that I have a nasal trumpet, which is also important to place in to make sure you do not obstruct the nose during your graft. And then all I have to do after the, the bone graft is uh, completely placed is to close this vestibular incision, which you can now see closed completely. And now my site is uh, ready to heal to hopefully uh, give a good uh, alveolar reconstruction. Um, so this is the technique, but we also looked at our result. Um, again, using the SWAG scale, uh, we've shown that overall our bone volume were comparing favorably to many of the other Americleft centers. If you focus on the, uh, the periapical radiograph or the occlusal radiograph uh, on the left, you can see that the SWAG scale is a scale where you get a maximum, maximum score of six, and it divides uh, the uh, alveolar cleft into uh, three regions. Um, and across all three regions, when we looked at our bone graft outcome or SWAG score uh, using with, with centers that used uh, nasal floor reconstruction, which was center one or center, all the other centers did not use a nasal floor reconstruction. We showed that overall our SWAG score or a bone volume was better, uh, and that was statistically significant compared to those other centers. But focusing more on this uh, apical third, where, which is where we place our nasal floor reconstruction, we also show that the advantage of using this nasal floor reconstruction, because the SWAG score across that third, again, the max score in that particular third would be a two, the, the, the SWAG score in that third in our center was highly significantly better compared to the other centers, again, showing that this nasal floor reconstruction has some benefit to the overall success of the graph. Now I'd like to switch gear, um, again, staying on cleft and craniofacial subject, but I'd like to go over how nowadays I plan my orthognathic cleft surgery or orthognathic craniofacial surgery. And I will illustrate a couple of cases that uh, represent a little bit what I do. So with the advance of uh, 3D imaging, intraoral scanning, we can really move to uh, advanced uh, planning and advance uh, implants for a patient. I don't have any affiliation with the striker, but I do use the facial ID with striker to you to basically give my patient patient my patient a, a patient specific solution to their uh, craniofacial deformity. To be able to uh, provide this care, you basically need three things. You obviously need your clinical exam, uh, and that you know nothing can replace that. Uh, so you obviously need to take all of your uh, measurements to make sure that you're going to come up with a good treatment plan for that patient. You also need uh, 
full face CBCT or regular CT scan, I typically take a full face CBCT. It gives me enough information for these type of cases. And you, we also need a intraoral scan of the maxillary and marrow dentition, um, as well as an intraoral scan of the occluded the current, the patient's current occlusion. And using these three pieces of information, we can come up with a plan. This plan is done uh, virtually um, and allows us to position the maxilla, the mandible, the chin into the desired position based on our assessment. Um, and you know, previously I would do the plan, I would use the splint fabricated um, uh, that were prefabricated based on this, this computer planning, which was giving me some, some good result. But to improve things even further, to really place your maxilla and or your mandible in the exactly desired position that you planned, now I started to use uh, facial ID. So to illustrate this, I'll present this first case. So this uh, young lady unfortunately had a, a trauma very young after birth, which led to an inhibition of growth at the level of the left uh, condyle and ramus unit, which eventually led to this facial asymmetry. So as you can see here, her chin point is significantly deviated to the left, and she also has a, a cant at the level of the maxilla and the mandible and a reduced ramus height uh, on the left. Associated with this, she also, from a profile view, showed a class two or convex facial profile with a retreating mandible and chin. From this submental view, again, you can see the degree of asymmetry with significant deviation of the chin and significant change in terms of the volume of the angle of the mandible on the left. Obviously, occlusion represented uh, what we saw clinically. So again, a significant class two malocclusion with uh, a symmetry of the level of the mandible with significant uh, dental midline deviation. On this radiograph, again, you can see the degree of asymmetry. And you can also note on the left side that the condyle ramus unit is much smaller due to that inhibition of growth that occurred after that trauma. Again, on this lateral ceph, you can see the class two dentorachial deformity, and you can see that the inferior border height is quite different uh, from one side to the other, uh, and again, indicating the asymmetry and the cant present at the level of the maxilla and mandible. So to correct this complex asymmetry, uh, this is what I would do. So obviously I will do a 3D planning. I will plan the position of my maxilla, plan the position of my mandible, and plan the position on my chin to try to give the patient the best uh, outcome possible. These are obviously complex movements. So to be able to really position my uh, maxilla and mandible in the adequate position, now I use cutting guides. So you can see on the image on the top, I use cutting guide to make my osteotomies, as well as positioning guide that will allow me to position the custom maxillary plate uh, which will uh, position my maxilla exactly in the de desired position. As you can see, the plate is all one piece, so the, it wraps around the whole maxilla, uh, despite the segmental osteotomy, again, to try to optimize as best as possible the, the, uh, the accuracy of the positioning of my maxilla to correct the asymmetry in cant. I've done it before with two individual plate, but I find that these single plate that wrap around work better. At the level of the mandible, I also planned a cutting guide uh, where, where I decided to do an inverted L osteotomy on the left side to increase uh, my ramus length and uh, uh, at that level. So I had a cutting guide made. I also had a, a bone graft guide to allow me to predict how much uh, bone material I would need uh, to graft the area. And also use the custom plate again to position my mandible in the desired position, as you can see in the image below. We also had significant uh, chin movement with uh, uh, significant advancement of the chin and midline correction at the level of the chin. And to achieve these type of movement, it's very difficult to freehand this. So I used again, a cutting guide and a custom plate, again, to maximize the positioning of my chin. Other advantages of that planning include uh, uh, the uh, good description of the anatomy, 
the root position, as you can see here on this diagram at the level of the maxilla, I know exactly where my roots are, how much bone I need to graft, how much bone I need to remove, um, again, being quite precise. At the level of the mandible, we can also know exactly the position of the nerve uh, to avoid an inferior nerve injury. Uh, again, at the level of the inverted L osteotomy, I can also predict uh, the area of grafting. Because this was also planned uh, using uh, a cutting guide and 3D planning, I was also able to do this inverted L osteotomy via intraoral approach, which uh, you know previously I would have done uh, via an extraoral approach. Again, uh, indicating another advantage of using these custom guides and or plates. And this was the uh, plan positioning for the end, giving the patient not a perfect, but almost uh, much better overall facial symmetry. So this is what we did. So we did a Lafort 1 osteotomy, uh, which was segmental to position the maxilla in the appropriate desired position, correcting also the maxillary cant. Uh, an inverted L osteotomy on the left, regular sagittal split osteotomy on the right, and a functional genoplasty osteotomy um, uh, to correct the chin asymmetry. You can see here on this lateral ceph that we also gave the mandible a much better projection and overall symmetry. And clinically, you can also see uh, the significant change in her facial uh, asymmetry. Uh, keep in mind that these pictures were taken four to six weeks post-op, so there's still some residual swelling, but you can already notice a significant change. On the profile view, you can also see that uh, the uh, metabolic position is improved with a much better uh, profile. From the submental view, you can again see the correction of the chin asymmetry, as well as the correction of the vertical length at the level of the mandible, which you can really see in this three-quarter view, giving the mandible on the left a much better uh, uh, projection and volume. Obviously, the occlusion is important, and we also corrected or occlusion adequately. There's obviously some further ortho to, to occur, but overall uh, a satisfactory result uh, in that complex case. And then finally, I will briefly also discuss another uh, complex case that uh, is much becomes much easier with the, the advance of, of 3D planning. So this uh, patient had a bilateral cleft lip and palate, and for whatever reason, uh, his premaxilla was removed at the time of the primary surgery that was done by another surgeon. Uh, and that led to a significant growth inhibition at the level of the maxilla and a compensatory overgrowth at the level of the mandible, leaving this really severe class three dentovisual deformity. So obviously conventional orthognathic will not work in this case. And the plan was obviously a distraction of the maxilla, which you can do using a, a red or an external distractor. But now with the 3D planning, I'm comfortable doing these cases using intraoral distraction. So I've planned my maxillary position. Again, use the cutting guide and positioning guide to allow me to place my distractor in the exactly the desired position to give the maxilla a proper vector of distraction. And this is what we did using the guide, we placed the distractor and we are able to distract the maxilla in that particular case about uh, close to 25 millimeters. Then uh, after uh, appropriate consolidation, the distractors were removed and we uh, also had planned a osteomy setback and a functional genoplasty uh, uh, osteotomy to reduce the, the vertical length of the chin, as you can see here. And uh, as you can see in the results here, um, the uh, facial profile was much improved after the surgery. Keep in mind, again, this, these were fairly early postoperative pictures. From a, a three-quarter view, again, a significant uh, improvement in his facial balance, which also can be pictured here on this uh, interposterior view. So thank you very much, and hopefully that was interesting, um, and I would be happy to answer uh, any question later on. So thanks again. Well, JC, I want to thank you for uh, sharing your, your techniques and some uh, really amazing results. Um, again, we'll, uh, we'll get back to some questions later on. Uh, it's now my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Kathy Russell to you. Uh, Dr. Russell graduated with both her BSc and DDS from Dalhousie University which was followed by a dental residency at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and her specialty diploma in orthodontics, focusing on cleft lip and palate, again from the University of Toronto. Following graduation, 
She joined the Faculty of Dentistry at Dalhousie University, where she is now a full-time, full professor and head of the Division of Orthodontics. She is also the chair and orthodontist on the IWK Health Center cleft palate and craniofacial teams. She maintains a community-based private orthodontic practice as well in Halifax. Dr. Russell also has an active research program and is published in the area of cleft lip and palate, image analysis, and dental biomaterials. She is a section editor for the Cleft Palate Craniofacial Journal. She's also a founding member of the AmeriCleft Research Group and continues involvement with that group focusing on outcomes assessment for best practices of care. She was awarded the Cleft Palate Foundation Junior Investigator Grant, as well as the Berkowitz Award for Best Long-Term Outcome Study published in the CPJ, and again, as co-author, the Berkowitz Award, again, twice more. Internationally, she has participated in Operation Smile Medical Missions to Africa. Welcome, Dr. Russell, and thank you for being here today. Uh, thank you, Dr. Erickson, and I'm just going to share my screen. Okay, uh, so first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Dan Stewart initially for the invitation to speak to uh, the NISO membership and also NISO themselves for following up and giving us the opportunity to, to talk with everybody today. So my presentation is going to focus on uh, the orthodontic component of early secondary alveolar bone grafting and, and what's the role of the orthodontist. So to start with, uh, I have no financial or, or uh, non-financial relationships to any parts of my presentation today. So initially, what are the goals of alveolar bone grafting? So basically, in a cleft site, we would like to uh, restore uh, bony continuity uh, to support dental eruption. Uh, support the teeth uh, from periodontal point of view. If there are any residual fistula, we'd like to close those. Uh, as Dr. Doucette outlined in his lecture in the videos, we'd like to reestablish the nasal uh, skeletal base floor of the nose that contributes to a functional uh, nasal airway. And it would also be advantageous if when placing the bone graft that provides initial bone stock uh, for future replacement of teeth now using dental implants. So the basis of my view of how orthodontics is involved with alveolar bone grafting goes back to these initial goals. So in 1972, there is a very classic publication, Boyne and Sands uh, publication regarding er, uh, secondary alveolar bone grafting. And there were clear outcomes that bone grafting at this time provided support for the erupting canine. It facilitated uh, closure of the alveolar cleft, closure of any uh, residual fistula, and provided bone support. This primarily focused on the canine, and this view seems to have lasted well in time, and still today people are focusing on the canine. But our predecessor, both Dr. Doucette's and mine, uh, started the idea of thinking, what about the central incisor? So the tooth on the medial side of the cleft. And also in a smaller percentage of patients is a lateral incisor. So what about support for the lateral incisor? And one of the reasons we start thinking about the central incisor and the tooth on the medial side is this uh, study uh, that Dr. Precious did with one of his residents looking at clinical crown height. And with later bone grafting at the age nine, um, the, the process that Dr. Sands had outlined. By the time we bone graft for the canine, the central incisor has already erupted and it has erupted into a site uh, that is not uh, completely filled with bone. So the tooth may be rotated, uh, may be malpositioned, uh, and it was clear that these teeth tend to have a longer clinical crown height. Uh, and that clinical crown height results in a less uh, advantageous periodontal support for the teeth. And from an orthodontic point of view, 
then in the future, if that tooth has a less than ideal periodontal and bony support, it may influence what we can do um, with orthodontic treatment when we go to move that tooth. And these are just uh, two images of uh, cleft site prior to grafting. Uh, the one on the left is uh, obviously a late secondary bone grafting uh, because the central incisor is already erupted. But on the slide on the left, you can see that the central incisor medial to the cleft is, is tipped and the teeth will erupt into a position where the tooth is tipped so that the root stays in uh, the, the bone. So these teeth are malpositioned uh, when they erupt prior to the timing of the graft. And then on the slide of the right, this on the right, this is a, a earlier time period. So the, the patients in the mixed dentition, they still have their primary incisors. And the black line outlines the area of the cleft that doesn't have any bony uh, fill. And you can see if you have uh, permanent teeth trying to erupt, uh, they won't erupt through space, so they will tip and turn and become malpositioned without the supporting bone. And then if we go even later and we think about the future eruption of the canine, there have been multiple studies uh, in the literature looking at uh, the eruption of permanent maxillary canines adjacent to a cleft site. Uh, this is just one in 2001, Anamark um, and his uh, colleagues looked at canines, and although they do sometimes spontaneously erupt if, if there's bone support, there is a much higher risk uh, for canines adjacent to a cleft site um, to be very uh, significantly uh, tipped or angled into the cleft site, resulting in uh, palatal impaction. Uh, we did a study uh, a number of years ago with one of our students um, who is now uh, an orthodontist uh, looking at the angulation of the cleft and that the cleft on the or the canine on the cleft side was four to five times uh, angu angulated um, compared to the non-cleft side. Now, this study didn't take it to eruption of the canine or the final result, but this was predicting canine position um, in the mixed dentition and would we need to uh, intervene at that time and do surgical exposure and orthodontic eruption. And there have been studies even since, uh, this is one uh, from one of my colleagues, uh, Anna Westerlund, um, again, uh, assessing the uh, prevalence of impacted and uh, the need for surgical exposures of canines in a population of patients who have a cleft. Um, and it was significantly greater than uh, either the non-cleft side or patients that don't have a cleft. So we know that these uh, permanent canines that develop uh, distal to a cleft are at risk for impaction. Um, so what can we do? If we have the opportunity to complete uh, an alveolar bone graft early, uh, reestablish uh, the normal anatomy within the dental alveolus, uh, maybe that will improve the dental eruption uh, positioning of the canine. Um, and the final requirements for treatment and possibly avoid uh, significant intervention with surgical exposure um, and orthodontically erupting an impacted canine. So if we go back to the very early development of a child who has a cleft, uh, this was out of uh, the textbook that uh, Bruce Rocks and Mac Johnson published way back in 1972. So we know there is altered position of the cleft segments. Uh, the major segment is deviated anteriorly and to the non-cleft side due to uh, active muscle involvement. There's collapse of the minor segment, um, and that often leads to uh, a non uh, uniform U-shaped arch um, with possibly overlap of the major minor segment if there's significant lingual collapse of, of, the, seg of the minor segment. 
Um, and how much collapse, of course, varies from patient to patient, but it is very routine that we see that the segments are um, malpositioned um, prior to the uh, repair of the cleft. And this continues after the lip is repaired. Um, of course, the alveolus has not been repaired uh, yet, just the lip and the palate, but we still see the collapse of the minor segment and we see the uh, major segment being pulled anteriorly and, and laterally to the non-cleft side. So prior to the bone graft, uh, we have to decide what we'd like to, like to do for those patients. Similarly, in a patient who has a bilateral cleft, um, prior to the alveolar bone graft, we will see uh, distorted arch forms. Commonly with a bilateral cleft, there may be a vertical step so that the premaxillary segment um, is overdeveloped uh, vertically. And you may see collapse of the posterior segments. Often it's collapse of the anterior part of the posterior segments. And you can see that here looking at both the 5-3 and the 6-3. So again, we have arch uh, distortion. It's not so asymmetric in a bilateral cleft. Uh, it's more uh, distortion and discrepancy in the vertical development. But these, these issues, both this one that is the um, unilateral uh, cleft and this case with a bilateral cleft, these are not orthodontic problems. These are distortions at the bony level. So what are, what are we going to do? And traditionally, a lot of people started doing orthodontic treatment, putting in expanders, trying to align these segments, and then trying to uh, later on move the teeth um, and uh, try to uh, position the teeth within the alveolus. Often there are patients who have hyperdontia, about 20% of the population of patients with a cleft may have an extra tooth. And uh, often people want to, uh, do we take out the teeth? Does that give the surgeon better access? Um, and it, it's highly recommended that when a patient has uh, supernumerary teeth in the site of the cleft, that we don't extract those teeth prior to the surgery unless requested by the surgeon. As long as we have teeth, we have more bone. So routinely we leave these uh, supernumerary teeth and our oral surgeon will deal with that at the time of surgery if they have to be extracted or if they can be maintained. So what, what is required from an orthodontic point of view before early secondary bone grafting? Uh, we have to ask ourselves what, what should we do and why are we doing it? Um, and in addition to that, what's the burden of care that we're putting on uh, both the patient and the family? Uh, there, there's a lot of convention to do um, arch alignment and pre-alveolar pre bone graft expansion of the arch. Um, but I think we have to ask ourselves why we're doing that sort of treatment and, and what the benefit is. So often in discussions, the question comes up, you know, why are you expanding? Well, you know, we're expanding to provide access to the surgical site. We're expanding so that the surgeon can put um, the bone into the graft site um, and complete the alveolar bone graft. So our view of this is that both the arch asymmetry, whether it's in a unilateral case or the vertical discrepancy uh, in a bilateral case, especially in a, a patient who's age about five uh, or six prior to the early secondary alveolar bone grafting, that this is a, a surgical skeletal problem. This is not an orthodontic problem of moving teeth or aligning teeth. Um, uh, and we don't necessarily just line up the arches uh, for the surgeon. 
my question to Dr. Doucette at the time of grafting is, does he require expansion or movement of the segments to do the graft? And that would be the only reason that I would try to do pre-alveolar bone grafting, orthodontic treatment, or arch alignment. And I think I can say since 1994, there's only been one case that I've had um, either Dr. Doucette or his predecessor uh, request to have orthodontic alignment. So the access to the cleft site, again, uh, I don't see as an orthodontic problem. Uh, I think that is a surgical issue um, to ensure surgical access. Uh, and in, in our discussions, um, it, it's having the proper surgical approach. If you think about doing orthodontic alignment, uh, increasing access to that area, in doing so, we're also making the cleft site larger. And that means that there has to be a greater amount of uh, donor bone. So does that increase the morbidity uh, for the iliac crest donor bone to, uh, for the patient? And also, as we make the cleft site larger, we have to remember that not only is there bone in that site for the graft, but we have to ensure that there's enough soft tissue to close the uh, the graft after the bone has been placed. So just aligning the segments uh, does not necessarily uh, happen without consequences uh, that we have to have to consider. So post-orthodontic, uh, after the bone graft has been placed, um, what are our options that we can address at that point? Well, there may be malaligned incisors and they're uh, very often a retrocline rotated incisors adjacent to the cleft. Often there are interferences uh, with mandibular teeth, possible functional shifts that we uh, think should be addressed. Question after the bone graft is expansion. Is the arch constricted? Is it constricted anteriorly, posteriorly? Do we need to expand it? That expansion should be considered um, in the overall treatment plan long-term. Is that patient going to have surgical orthodontics at the completion of the growth because they have a skeletal class three malocclusion? And if so, would the surgical movement advance the maxilla? And then maybe our constriction isn't so much a lateral issue, but we have to consider as the maxilla is brought forward, how much expansion do we need? So I think considering arch expansion in these patients has to be viewed in light of the long-term 3D surgical orthodontic treatment plan. And also post uh, alveolar bone graft, where are canines? And do we need to do anything to prevent uh, impacting canines? Because we do know that they are at a higher risk in this population of patients. So, Pre-alveolar bone grafting, uh, we don't recommend expansion unless in a very specific case, uh, the surgeon requests it. Uh, Post-alveolar bone grafting, that's when we assess for expansion of the arch, uh, dental alignment, um, removing any uh, interferences, and considering what we're going to do in view of the long-term treatment plan. Is our expansion skeletal? surgical in nature, or is this a dental problem that we need to just align the teeth? So this, these are uh, pictures, um, compliments of uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Eric Howard, who was part of the very initial group uh, of AmeriCleft when we started our, our research uh, many, many years ago. One of the things that is common, commonly thought is that after a bone graft, you can't expand the maxillary arch. Um, but if we actually think of the anatomy, the site that uh, is changed with our traditional uh, palatal expansion is in the midline, whereas our cleft site is to the lateral. So the maxillary arch expansion is not something that happens um, uh, 
with the area next to the cleft. So these pictures are just a, a case. The patient has a left unilateral cleft uh, lip and palate, and you can see there's a 2-1 and then the erupting uh, 2-3 and there's no lateral. And on the left is pre-treatment. Uh, the patient had an RPE placed. Uh, at that point it was banded. This was a number of years ago. Uh, Post-expansion, we see the usual uh, central diastema that opens up. Um, we see the expanded, much broader arch form. And the x-ray on the right, we can see the wide and uh, mid-palatal suture, that traditional x-ray view um, after expansion, and no expansion or alterations to the area uh, where the cleft was and where the bone graft was. So we can expand um, these patients. And uh, this is a, a big, long hyphenated word. And to tell you the truth, I'm not really sure what it means other than that's what we do orthodontically. If we have teeth that are well supported in bone, we can move them within the alveolus uh, to position them correctly. So after a bone graft, if we have full grafting from the floor of the nose down to the alveolus, uh, we have full bony support on our teeth on both sides of the cleft, both mesial and distal, we can align arches. We can position teeth over uh, their supporting bone. So if we have a, a young patient uh, prior to the eruption of the permanent central incisors, uh, and then after uh, successful bone grafting, the floor of the nose is reestablished. We have alveolar bone uh, from the floor of the nose all the way down to the alveolus. We can put braces on, we can expand the arch, we can uh, line up those teeth, we can prepare that patient for uh, future surgical orthodontics. And the important thing is that we time our grafting to benefit the dentition as much as possible, not just for the canines, but also for the centrals and the laterals. So I just have a few pictures of just some patients um, after bone grafting. Um, patient presented with malaligned incisors, rotate incisors adjacent to the cleft. So usually about six months after the uh, bone graft would be the earliest that we'd ever consider doing orthodontic treatment. Um, but we time it individually for each, each patient. So uh, this patient obviously had malaligned incisors, was not very happy uh, with the aesthetics. So we can do a little bit of orthodontics at that time, traditional uh, fixed appliances, two by four mechanics. We line up the incisors. Um, it's not a long treatment plan. Uh, functional uh, benefits, but also significant psycho psychosocial benefits for these patients. And because we have full bone stock, the cleft site has been fully uh, restored to normal, uh, we can move these teeth in three dimensions. Another case, uh, a functional uh, problem with a rotated central incisor starting to get a little bit of wear and a notch. So again, we put on uh, limited fixed appliances. Patients know that we're going to revisit this in the future when all their teeth are erupted, skeletal growth, uh, whether it's a non-surgical or surgical treatment plan. But again, this is not only functional, um, but also significantly psychosocial for, for a lot of these patients. And future treatment, you know, after uh, comprehensive ortho, the finished growth, it, so many patients are missing their lateral incisors. If we have a successful bone graft, then that dentition can be restored with osseointegrated implants. So with uh, successful bone grafts, it just gives the patient one more option um, for successful treatment and long-term restoration of their dentition. So what, what are the common reasons uh, that we often hear, and I, I hear this so often at, at conference, um, 
because we're discussing early secondary alveolar bone grafting and there's so many centers that still do um, later secondary bone grafting for the canine and people, oh, you can't do that. It's not gonna work. Um, well, they say there, there isn't you know, access. So we have to widen the arch. We have to expand the arch for, for access. So when I you know, talked to Dr. Precious in the past and Dr. Doucette, they say that it's surgical access. It's not uh, orthodontic access that we have to expand and move the teeth. Um, they say, well, you know, the central's not affected. Well, I think there, there is an abundance of evidence and we clearly know that the central sizes are affected. And there are limitations if there isn't sufficient bone on the central incisors as to what we can do later on with our orthodontic treatment. Uh, people have, have said that, you know, the early secondary bone graft will prevent expansion, that we weld the segments together. And that clinically does not uh, bear out because we can move the teeth, we can line up the segments um, and have very successful results. And people, um, are concerned about growth effect, especially after um, you know primary bone grafting, and we clearly know that now that that has a negative effect. So it was a, a viable concern with this early secondary alveolar bone grafting having have an effect on maxillary growth. But I think the the literature and the research is is starting to clearly show that it's not not an issue with um, maxillary growth. So our Amerikleff group is very interested in looking at outcomes of what we do. And one of the difficulties with cleft and cleft research is that it takes a clinician's lifetime to get results. There's so many things that these patients have by way of treatment over their, their lives. And to get to the end result, the patient's 18, 20, 21 years old. Um, so it's, it's long-term commitment to looking at, at, at this patient population and all the treatment options that are, are out there. So we had um, developed our SWAG method with Dr. Doucette discussed, um, looking at, uh, at the bone graft. And one of the things that became very clear uh, as an influence of the result was not was the arch expanded or not. Um, it was, was the nasal floor closed? So in the cases where there was nasal floor closure, the bone graft results were better. So this is a, a surgical approach. Um, so it's not that we have to expand the arch um, to uh, get a better bone graft result. And actually the centers that expanded the arch but didn't close the nasal floor had much poorer results. So nasal floor closure is a big, uh, factor in the success of the uh, final result. And then, of course, we looked at growth. Uh, Dr. Doucette covered this nicely, um, that our early secondary bone grafts at about age six really has no uh, uh, negative effect on growth that we can see um, at this point. So we talked about the goals of bone grafting. So the simple bone graft satisfies all these goals. So none of these goals have to involve orthodontic treatment. So all of those can be achieved early secondary bone grafting without doing any orthodontic treatment. From an orthodontic point of view, what do we want? Well, we want very similar things. We want teeth erupted into the arch. We want periodontal, soft tissue, hard tissue support. We don't want any fistula. We want to reestablish the cleft site, the skeletal base, the nose of the floor, have normal bone anatomy, then we can move the teeth. So all of these aspects are also achieved. So with the proper early secondary alveolar bone graft, we can achieve um, an ideal orthodontic treatment. So if we're looking at the goals of orthodontic treatment at the time of our bone graft, well, we wanna minimize their treatment. We only wanna do what's necessary. And that's why we had the discussion, Dr. Doucette and I, is does he need me to expand the arch? Because the only reason I would expand the arch at that age is to facilitate his surgery. So do I need to do that? Majority of cases, 99% of cases, I don't need to do that. We have to remember that these patients have multidisciplinary care. They have 
um, many surgeries, um, lip, palate, revision surgery for speech, um, ENT, uh, they go through a lot of treatment. So we don't want to do anything more than we want to. What's the psychological aspect of care? Um, it's not easy to put expansion in a young child. Um, and do we need to do that? Uh, what's the burden of care to the young patient? What's the burden of care to the family for all these appointments with the expansion? Um, and we have to re remember that there's a child you know, behind that cleft um, and consider what we're doing and do we need to do it. Knowing what we can do after the bone graft, um, maybe we'll make uh, the long-term treatment plan a little bit different um, and not necessarily doing early orthodontic treatment before the bone graft. So I hope, hope you enjoyed um, the discussion from the orthodontic point of view and how uh, we see the combination of orthodontics and early secondary alveolar bone grafting. I'd like to thank Niso again. It was a, an honor and a pleasure to be part of the um, presentations virtually this year, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Kathy, for sharing your, your, thank you for sharing your very uh, interesting and, and well thought out approach to treating these cleft patients. Uh, I see uh, Dr. Desette has joined us uh, on the video. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to ask a couple of questions that uh, have been shared by uh, some of our viewers, um, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Kathy, what effect would early secondary alveolar bone grafting with no pre-orthodontic treatment have on the risk for the impacted canines? Um, that's a really good question because we, we, we talk about the canine uh, erupting and it's distal to the cleft. We know that the canine, uh, normally the theory is that it's guided by the lateral incisor. Most of these patients don't have lateral incisors. And the canine's developing very high in the alveolus where there's no bone. So again, this is, this is an area that's really uh, of interest to me, but it takes a lifetime to see these patients and have them grafted. And then, you know, is the canine erupting on its own and where does it end up? But in patients who have a cleft, there's generally a delayed dental development and delayed root development on these teeth. So if we could bone graft at age six, then there's a much more normal bony environment for the development of that canine and for the tooth to erupt through alveolar bone, not trying to find bone in an abnormal position. Uh, so we'd like to think that if we could graft earlier that we would have better uh, eruption and alignment of the canines, probably far from perfect. But even if we could increase the rate of these teeth erupting into the mouth spontaneously and not having to have them surgically exposed. So I think that that's one thing I'd really like to follow long term, but hope that if we grafted earlier, when the canines are still very high in the alveolus, they'd have a better eruption path and self-eruption. Thank you. Um, Dr. Desette, in Kathy's presentation, she indicated that she would not be doing um, expansion prior to alveolar bone grafting unless you requested it. Perhaps you could outline in what situations would you recommend um, such expansion? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for the question. So as, as uh, Dr. Russell mentioned, you know, it's almost never that I request uh, uh, an expansion before the bone graft. Um, really, the only time that I feel that it might be necessary is, if, is often when there is a significant overlap of the segments. So there is the very, very rare cases um, where the small cleft segment will be overlapping behind completely the, the large segment. And with that overlap, if I feel that I'm not going to be able to achieve a good primary closure, a good closure of my nasal floor, a good closure of my fistula, this is when I will uh, request an expansion. Um, to be honest, this, I, as Dr. Russell mentioned, there's been only one case where I requested that. It was a bilateral case where the premaxilla was significantly malpositioned and both segments on the other side were completely behind the premaxilla. Um, so overall, this would be a, a very rare scenario in most cases. 
uh, in most cases, as you dissect and you open up the cleft, it looks narrow in some cases, but as you open up the cleft, as you go superiorly uh, closer to the nasal floor, the cleft widens out, uh, which al allows us to achieve a proper closure. So very, very few cases that would require an expansion, but yes, if there's a really significant overlap for those segments, that might be an indication. All right, excellent. Thank you both. Well, look, on behalf of our president, Dr. Dan Stewart and the entire Niso family, I really wanna thank Dr. Russell and Dr. Doucette for sharing your really amazing work and for bringing this wonderful session to NISO. And I wanna thank our NISO experience attendees for joining us today uh, and be sure to take the test and complete the session evaluation in order to receive your CE credits for this session. Once again, thank you and that ends this session. <laughs>